Well, we're going to jump into the deep end today with some hard or difficult to answer questions. Why are you here? Some of y'all are thinking, why am I here? I lost an hour of sleep. And you're in the second worship gathering. Think how the first one felt. Um, Why are you here? Why are you breathing another breath? Why are you living another day? And for some people, this is a question that they never actually are able to answer. They will live for their life. They'll live for their days. They'll live for their years. And they can truly, they don't have anything of substance to say that this is why I exist. And I want us to really dive behind that and understand the why because there's an, I don't know if you call it an epidemic, it's certainly not a pandemic, but it's certainly a tragic season that we live in in American culture that I'm seeing over the course of my 30 years, celebrating 30 years in ministry in January, over my course of my 30 years in ministry, I would say the last eight, I've seen more of this than in the previous year's total. In the past eight years, maybe I have seen this happen to family members, happen to friends, happen to people who knew people, people to church members, to somebody who was even in our last service lost their spouse to this. And that is the topic of suicide. And again, I told you we were jumping in deep, but the reality is, is, is in, since the turn of the millennium, there has been a 30% consistent increase in the number of suicides across America. Yet we are one of the most educated, the best health care, the most opportunities, yet 30% between 2000 and 2016 have we seen an increase in suicide. It's disturbing, and many of you know people who this has been an issue for them. In their lives personally, maybe in extended families. 2000 to 2006, it was increasing at a a pretty steady rate of 1% annually. But since 2006 to 2016, when the study ended, it was up to 2% increase annually. So we're actually not getting better at this. This is a problem in our culture, in our society, where this generation is having a hard time answering the question, why am I breathing? Why do I exist? Why am I here? And that's a disturbing thing because if you lose your why, you lose the reason for your existence. And all of a sudden, everything just gets turned upside down. And all of a sudden, now you begin playing a voice in your head that says, why don't I just end it all? Wouldn't it be better for everyone if? And we start believing these lies and telling ourselves these lies. Simon Sinek wrote a book, actually before he wrote the book, he was actually a TED Talk that was an incredible TED Talk, over 49 million views as of this morning. And he simply asked the question, start with the why. He tells us to start with why and let the why be what drives our lives. And and he ends up writing a book out out of the TED Talk. And this is what he says in the very first pages of the book. He said, the discovery of why completely changed my view of the world. And discovering, notice he's going to make it personal here, discovering my own why restored my passion 
to a degree multiple times greater than any other time in my life. Now, I don't know why his why or what he, how he arrived at his why, and neither do I necessarily want to pull that apart and dissect that. But I do want to know, you to notice this. When you understand your why, when you have the reason behind your existence, then it gives you a restored, a renewed passion for your living. Whether you're in the job that you're in, the relationship that you're in, the home that you're in, the circumstances that you're in, if we can attach the why, it will give us a sense of living. Now, we're not going to deal with the why, per se. We dealt with that at the beginning of the year. Brett and I shared a message series together, and we literally, first message out of the, out of, out of the beginning was, what is your why, and begin with the why. So go back and re-listen to that. What I want to share with you today is the power source to the why. If you can understand the power source to the why, then you can go into the why with energy, with momentum and focus to move forward. And that is where we will be today. And I want to do that in looking at the gospel of Mark. As we began last week, it's a, it's a, it's a several week journey that we're on looking at the gospel of Mark. And I want to take us to the thesis statement for the entire narrative written unlike John, unlike Luke, unlike Matthew. Matthew, Mark lays the foundation of which the other Gospels then uses the template or, or the format or the frame or the skeleton of which they write their Gospels. But Mark is the first one written, written in the 60, late 60, 60s, early 70s AD. And as he writes it, he literally starts with his thesis statement. He says this, the beginning, in fact, oh, we read this last week. I want you to read it with me. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ, the Son of God. I'm not going to unpack that. I did that last week, but I want you to notice in here that genitive of object or the object genitive here is that Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is. Gospel means good news. Jesus Christ, he is the object of the good news. And that is going to be what we're going to understand as the power to the why. When we understand our why, it's going to have to attach itself to a source, and that source being Jesus Christ. And when we understand that Jesus Christ is all about gospel, all about good news to us, then we're going to understand that this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning, and it's going to continue on. And so we get to be a part of the continuation of that story. Now, how can I say that Jesus Christ is is the good news, is the gospel, is the one who gives us uh, a reason to live, answers the why. Because there's other verses. There's so many other verses, but John 10, 10 being one of those. Probably familiar to most of you, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And every time I hear a suicide, and any time I've done a funeral service of somebody who's committed a suicide, I will always come to John 10, 10. The thief, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And every time I see someone take their life, I think the thief swept in, he stole, he killed, and he destroyed. He did exactly what he said he was about. He did exactly how he wanted to do it. But the opposite end of that is that I came, Jesus is speaking here, I came to give you life, quantity, and to give it to you abundantly, 
quality. He is about a qualitative life and a quantitative life. It's a life that never ends with him, and it's a life that is full with him. So when I talk about a source of life, a source of purpose, a source of the why, a power source, then I'm talking about Jesus Christ. And as we understand that and unpack that, moving into this, it helps us to understand why I'm breathing. Why am I here today? Why do you have breath and do I have breath? And that is coming down to this one simple statement. There is a Jesus call on my life. He wants me to have life and have it abundantly. He wants me to have quality of life and quantity of life. There's a Jesus calling on my life. And about the best way I can take the four Gospels and sum them up, and hopefully you'll see it today, is that I am called in this Jesus calling to become a disciple who makes more and better disciples. That's my calling. Okay, that may not be as sexy as you wanted it to be. That may not be as marketable as you wanted it to be. That may not turn your crank as much as you wanted it to turn. But listen to this. The fact that God is trying to work in me to make the best me possible, to become a disciple, a follower of Him, a multiplier of Him, to make more and better disciples. We're going to see this in this text today, so just kind of un, I'm just laying it out there for you on the front end. Whenever we about, I don't know, it took us about six months as a pastoral team, deacons got involved in the conversation, and we were trying to just come up with a simple definition of what it meant to be a disciple. Because hidden in that definition of our calling is this word disciple. And I know that's a Christianese word. We get lost in Christianese. And sometimes there's different definitions. In fact, it was interesting, as we asked the pastors around the table, we had as many different definitions for a disciple as we had pastors around the table. So we thought we've got to get our arms around one definition. So what we did for six months is we studied every single passage in the Gospels that used the word disciple. Looked for, extracted out common themes, common qualities that were true of them. And this is where we landed. Deacons gave their input. This is where we landed. That we would become, that this is what a disciple is, all right? That I would become or we're becoming a fully obedient multiplier following Jesus. All right, I want you to say that with me because this is a this is a participation part, okay? Say that with me, all right? That a disciple is becoming fully obedient multiplier following Jesus. And in that statement, you see that we are called to be better disciples and we are called to make more disciples. You see the calling hidden within the within the definition that we are to make more and we are to make better disciples, that we are to be a part of that whole discipleship process. Take your Bibles and be finding the Gospel of Mark. Now again, I told you we're doing a disservice to Mark last week. There's 16 chapters and we're not even covering all the chapters. We're going to cover the high theme. So what we've asked you to do in your own times every day throughout the week is that you would study the Gospel of Mark in the section that we're going to be looking at or that we just looked at. And so hopefully you're keeping track with us. If you didn't, grab a, a bulletin on your way out or you can follow along on our app. But nevertheless, I want you to understand that Jesus, throughout His life, 
from the beginning, he was making more and he was making better disciples. And he never, ever turned the tide and went one way or the other. It seems like when you talk about quality or quantity, they seem we want to make them opposed to one another. In reality, they actually balance each other out. They don't pull each other apart or contradict each other. They balance each other out. Even when Jesus was dying on the cross, he's winning a thief next to him to become a follower of him. So he's making more disciples. And he's looking down at John, his beloved disciple, and he's discipling him to have a compassion ministry with a grieving mother Mary. So you can see Jesus, when he's on the cross, is still making more and still making better disciples. All throughout his ministry, he's making more and better disciples. Let's not get away from that. What are we supposed to be about? We're supposed to be becoming a disciple who's making more and better disciples. That's our calling all the way through. Let's look at it in the entirety of the text. So Mark chapter 3. And if you have one of our journal Bibles, great tool to have and keep with you in this study. Great tool to have and, uh, and use throughout your own time that's got a page of Scripture and a page of journaling. Be writing out what God's teaching you as you go through this. But Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples. Okay? Jesus withdrew with his disciples. Who are these disciples? Well, let's go back to what we just said a disciple was. Say it with me. Becoming fully obedient multiplier following Jesus, okay? So who's he pulling aside? He's pulling aside those who are becoming fully obedient multipliers following Jesus. That's who he's pulling aside. To the sea and a great crowd. I want to point this out to you. If you want to circle the word disciple, if you have a journal Bible or you have your own Bible, circle the word disciple or circle the word crowd because we're going to see these two, not ever opposed, quality and quantity. We're going to see these two operating in tandem with each other. The crowd followed him and they were from Galilee and it gives a whole address list of where they're from, Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and, and the Jordan or beyond the Jordan and, and, and around Tyre and, and Sidon. And when a great crowd heard all that was he was doing, they came to him. So Jesus, there's just masses of people coming to him. And we're going to see more and more people come to him. And Jesus is never opposed to the more. He's okay with the more, okay? And he told his disciples to, to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, because of the crowd. Now notice this, because they were going to crush him. That's how large it got. It got to the point that it was dangerous for Jesus to function in a mob mentality because they all wanted to get close. They all wanted to experience him. They all wanted to, 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 to feel his presence and to experience him. For he had healed many so that they all the, the diseases pressed around him uh, uh, could touch him or touch, to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, now notice this, I pointed this out last week, the unclean spirits are declaring who Jesus is. So in case you're struggling who Jesus is, listen to the demons. Now, you'll never hear that in church, right? Listen to the demons. They're telling you who Jesus is. You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them, listen to this, not to make him known. 
Now, there's a lot of reasons behind that, but one of them is it's not the job of the demons to be out evangelizing. It's the job of the disciples to be doing the work of a disciple making. So that's up to us, not up to the demons. Let's not let them do our work. Verse 13, and he went up to the mountain and he called to him those who were desired. He desired whom he desired. And he, they came to him. And he appointed 12 and whom he named apostles so that, purpose clause, they might be with him. He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, who is, uh, he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and uh, John, the brother of James, to whom uh, his name is Bonadress, and I'm not going to say that again, so you said on your own. Uh, that is the sons of thunder, okay? He was a bull in a china closet. That's all I can picture. Uh, he, uh, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and, and Thaddeus and, and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. When you look at this list, you know these names. You've heard these if you've been in church at all, but you've got to see them in the context. Here's this huge crowd. They're all gathering around Jesus. Jesus calls from this huge crowd, this more. He calls from more. He wants to make better these followers of him. So we're going to see these working together, these two working together. So I want you to see today two phases of a Jesus calling. Now, you've got to figure out where you are in those phases of calling, okay? Are you in the crowd? Are you in the disciples? Are you with him, walking with him, becoming like him? Or are you in the crowd? Nothing wrong with either, okay? This is not good against bad here. This is actually good. This is not talking about the scribes of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He's talking about people who wanted to be close to Jesus. First phase is the phase of being in Jesus' crowd. That's a good thing. To want to be with Jesus, to go and be with Jesus, to hang out with Jesus, to watch and see Jesus, to taste and see Jesus, to experience Jesus. There's a lot of people, some in this room right now, who are not yet Christ followers. But they feel this draw, this sense of, there's something good here. I need to hear more. I need to lean in. I want to get as close as I can. That may be you that I just described. And that's what I want to say to you. Welcome. We're glad to have you. Jesus invites the crowds to come and see. That is why Jesus operated. He invited the crowds to come and see. When Philip, for example, when Philip becomes a follower of Jesus, he turns around and goes to his brother Nathaniel. Nathaniel was a racist bigot. No other way to put it. He couldn't stand anybody from Nazareth. He couldn't see anything good coming out of Nazareth. And what does Philip say? This man is from Nazareth. And you need to come and see him. That's exactly what he says in John chapter 1, verse 46. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Simple invitation. Come and see. I'm not going to try to persuade you. I just want you to come and see. And whenever we're inviting and we're investing and we're including and we're, we're engaging and whenever we are showing and sharing Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people, what are we doing? Sometimes we're just saying, hey, come and see the Jesus that I know. Come, come experience a little bit of what I have. When the Samaritan woman, same thing. Notice this, the same two words are going to be used. 
Samaritan woman becomes a follower of Christ. She meets Jesus. She's not even a Jew. She meets Jesus at a well. She leaves her jar. The reason that she went, she had a new why to live for. And she goes back to her village in John chapter 4, verse 28 and 29. So that the woman left her water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I did, that I ever did. And can, can this be the Christ? Come and see. Simple invitation. Jesus Christ has no problem having an attractional ministry where people come and see and experience. We want to be an attractional place. That's how Jesus lived his life. When you think about Jesus and you study the span of his life, he actually, you got to see that his ministry continued to grow and grow and grow. For example, Jesus went on a vision trip to a little seaside community called Capernaum. He goes there and he meets with people in the synagogue. He believes God's calling him there. And it says in Matthew that he actually moved and made Capernaum his home. And that's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. He moves to Capernaum and makes it his home. And his first place that he begins his ministry is not in the synagogue, but it's actually in Peter's home. He got there and there was such, such a great teaching and such a great work that the church continued to grow. They filled up the room, all the rooms of the house. They were spilling out into the courtyard. They couldn't fit in the door. This is what it says in Mark chapter 2, verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. It got to be so full and people wanted to so get close to Jesus. You know what they did? They ripped the roof off the house. They lowered somebody down so that Jesus would be able to heal them. So they had their first building program as a church. Ripping the roof off, putting the person down so that this person could just get close to Jesus. Well, needless to say, the home church didn't work, didn't last long. They had to move out. Well, the synagogue wasn't going to welcome them to have their church there. So what do they do? They go to the hillside. I've been to Capernaum multiple times. It is a beautiful place at the north end, north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it actually has this embankment that rises up. That's probably, if you look at this room, as wide as this room, but probably stacked too high. And it has this beautiful theater feel to it in the sense that it is literally into the ground. And both times I had our tour guide go down by the shore and we set up on the banks uh, or up on the, uh, on the side of the hill and they with just a simple, gentle voice were able to speak and we were able to hear. So Jesus moves the church outside Moves it outside, begins to teach the masses, and the hillside became so full that he had to get into a boat. So we've gone from a house to a hillside and now to a boat. And this is what it says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. And that same day, Jesus went out of his house, sat beside the sea, and a great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. So he couldn't even get on the beach because the crowd was so big. I want you to just see this, that the size of Jesus' ministry, the crowds of Jesus' followers were coming larger and larger. Now, just again for impact, let's go back to our passage. Look at verse 7 and 8. It says, And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and the crowds followed him. The crowds followed him. 
So he couldn't even get away from it with his disciples. Where were they coming from? Galilee. Galilee was the immediate region right around there. And Judea. And Jerusalem. That's further to the south. And Edomia, the only time it's used in the New Testament, it's used right here. It means Edom. Okay, it's from the area of Edom. And from beyond the Jordan, so you think about from the Mediterranean Sea, past the Mediterranean Sea, over past the Jordan River to the east. So we got east and west. We've got Edom to the far, far, far south. And then it says this, And from Tyre and Sidon, a great crowd heard all that he was doing, and they came to him. It was an attractional ministry. They were coming to Jesus. They were coming by the masses. Now, how far of a reach did Jesus' ministry have? From Sidon to the north, from the Mediterranean Sea to the west, and from beyond, we don't know how far beyond, beyond the Jordan to the east, and as far south as Edema. Edema was in nearly Arabia. I did a Google map search today. If you were to drive it today on good road, okay, this is this morning, it would take you 10 hours and 52 minutes, and that's with no potty breaks. So think about that. If you went from north to south, as far as Jesus' ministry had gone, it had gone 10 hours going at car speed, okay? That's a lot of distance to travel, 525 miles to be exact. People would travel up to 40 miles on foot on flat ground in a day. How You do the math. How long would it take to get to the feet of Jesus? But yet people kept coming. People kept coming. What do we learn about this? Well, if you go on to verse 9 and 12, and I won't have time to read it, they were coming to be ministered to by Jesus. They were coming to learn of Jesus. They were coming to experience Jesus. Here's what I know about characteristics about the crowd. Real, real quickly. One is crowd people are seekers. They're seekers, and there's nothing wrong with being a seeker. Okay? They're seeking Jesus' healing. They're seeking Jesus' answers. They're seeking answers for the why. They're, they're trying to figure out life. And you know what? Again, some of y'all in this room right now are trying to figure it all out. Just like Nicodemus came to him in the middle of the night with questions. So it is. Seekers. The second one is uh, crowds are consumers. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But they are. They're, they're consumers. They're there to consume experiences and truth and they're not there to contribute. That's why we say every Sunday, we don't ask our members to give. Our, uh, we don't ask our, our guests to give. Excuse me, members, we do ask you to give. Uh, we ask our members to give as covenant members because our guests, you're just here as our guest, okay? And so consumers, I can tell you this story in Mark chapter 7 when the Syrophoenician woman who was to the far north of Sidon, she came all the way to Jesus because her daughter was sick back home and she wanted to be healed. And there's this cultural exchange between this, uh, this, this woman and Jesus. And it's an incredible story, the Syrophoenician woman. And it happens in Mark 7. But she comes all the way from Sidon to meet with Jesus. She's a consumer. That's okay. Crowds are where we all start. We all started in the crowds. But it's not okay to stay there. I, I must say that. 
If you're a part of the crowd today and you've been a part of the crowd of following Jesus and hanging out with Jesus and you'd call yourself a grace pointer and you'd call yourself a a Jesus person, but, eh, you know, you're kind of on the fence on this whole relationship with him thing. I want to challenge you. Step out of the crowd. It's good to be a part of the crowd. Don't stay there, though. Don't stay there. Because being a Jesus disciple is best. And that's the second phase. Once you move from the crowd, you move to becoming a disciple. And that's where we need to be. That's where Jesus steps out of the crowd and he goes up to on the side of the mountain. Jesus attracted the crowd. Notice this. There's a process. He attracted the crowd, but he made disciples. See, a disciple is a person who makes disciples. That's the multiplier part. More and better disciples. He attracted the crowd, but he makes disciples. Jesus invites the crowds to come and see. Jesus calls the disciples to follow and go. And it's not just follow, and it's not go before you follow. There is a process and there is an order. I believe Jesus, he was probably one of the most healthy men of his day. I believe he was on the Mediterranean diet before the Mediterranean diet book came out. He walked everywhere. He ate natural, unprocessed food. I mean, he probably, again, was one of the most healthy. And I know this because he could climb mountains like nobody else. Whenever he was tempted, it says in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, he climbed a mountain because he was tempted. And he was tempted on the mountains, a very high mountain, the Bible says. Whenever Whenever he showed himself to his closest disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Tabor, he climbed a mountain to show himself off. Whenever he got with his disciples, Mountain climbers in the room, Kevin Crow, I think you're in the room. You, you like climbing rocks. You're like Jesus, or Jesus is like you. I don't know whichever one. But uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says this, And when Jesus saw his ministry drawing a huge crowds, he climbed the hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed climbed with him. I like that. Are you a part of the committed, willing to climb with Jesus? He got aside and he called people aside in verse 13 and 15 through 15. It says, and he went up to the mountain and he called to him. So they had to climb the mountain with him. Those who he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12 and he names them off. So that they, so that, this is the reason, this is the purpose clause Why does he call disciples? Why are we a disciple? Why, why, why? Purpose clause. Here it is, the why. So that we will be with him and that we might, that he might send us out to preach and that we might have authority over demons and unclean spirits. He tells us what it means to be a disciple. A disciple, they're called to live with Jesus. Don't miss that, okay? It's that being with time. I ask you, what's your being with Jesus time look like? Man, if you aren't having daily time with God, you're missing it. You're not breathing him in and letting him consume you and and letting him become a part of your conversation and a part of your story. What reason we're giving you these texts in this Lent Lent time, not Advent, Lent time, is we're giving you a study. It's on an app. It's there for you. But we can't make you. We can't give you the time. You have to take the time to be with him. But he said, I'm 
calling that they might be with him. But also, disciples are called to live sent. We're not only called to be with Jesus, but we're called to live sent. You hear us say that around here all the time. Do you realize that that's actually biblical? That we're actually called to go from here? He calls his disciples so that they might be with him, verse 14, and that he might send them out to preach. Don't think of preaching as what I'm doing right here. All right? It is declaring. It is making known. It is telling your God's story. When you go out on Monday morning, when you go to school, whenever you hit the work, whenever you're in the neighborhood, when you're with people around you, that's why we say live sent is showing and sharing Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. We're called. That's what we're called to. It's why we have breath. And it's when Jesus calls his disciples back in chapter one last week, remember? Chapter 1, verse 17, he said, Follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Follow me, condition, promise, I will make you fishers of men. Promise with a condition. You follow me, I will do this. You do this, I do this. That's how most of God's promises work. The following him is what we do. What he does is he makes us fishers of men. So here's the, here is the acid test. If you're not fishing, are you following? If you're not showing and sharing Jesus, are you following? Again, I ask you in the beginning of this message to determine today, are you a part of the crowd? There's a lot of people love hanging out with Jesus, getting a little Jesus motivational speech every now and then, getting a little warm fuzzy coming to church on Sunday, feasting in on the coffee and the pastries. Get, coming in here, maybe getting a, maybe getting a truth. Every, I mean, there are people who come from far and wide for that. Okay? Just like they did with Jesus. But what Jesus does is he calls us to be disciples. Disciples are called to be with. They're called to live sent. They're called to live victorious. That means that we are greater in power and strength and authority than the dark side of this world. I have to mention, point this out. In the past two weeks, I've talked more about demons than I have in any consecutive Sundays in 18 years as a church. Now, that may be a fault of mine, but the text is literally forcing me to go there. Talked about it last week. I talk about it this week. Disciples are called to live victorious. He said, you will have authority over the demons over the unclean spirits. You can have authority. The problem is, and I know I've been guilty of this, some people make demons in everything. The demons are in the dandelions of their yard. The demons are in their little two-year-old. No, that's just terrible twos. The demons, no, they're not everywhere and all that. But some people have gone the other extreme and demons are nothing. It's almost as if the demons have blinded them. And in our culture in America, we don't want to talk about it, so I think we many times are blind to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Don't be blinded. They're very real, 
And they're like this. Neil Anderson in his great book, Bondage Breaker, probably the best book if you want to study up on spiritual warfare, you want to have victory in your life in spiritual warfare, Bondage Breakers would be the first book I would turn to outside of the scriptures. Demons are like invisible germs looking for someone to infect. They never, we are never told in scripture to be afraid of them. You just need to be aware of their reality and commit yourself to know the truth and to live a righteous life. If you, as a follower of Christ, will say, Jesus, I'm going your way and I'm listening to your truth. I'm not going to make my truth up and my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. I'm going to go with your truth and I'm going to go with your way. I'm going to follow you, Jesus, and be a disciple of yours. That is the victorious life of a follower of Christ. And he calls us to that. So many believers I see living in a defensive posture, afraid of the dark side. We need to realize that we are not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Can I say that again? Because that should have resolved in some kind of either a deep sigh or an amen or thank you, Jesus. So let me say it again. Practice this. We are not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Jesus won the victory. Thank you. Thank you. I want to make sure I wasn't preaching to myself there for just a moment. We live on our heels when we should be living on our toes because we are victors in the battle. We are called to victory and we should be pushing back, not only defensive, but we also have offensive, pushing back the darkness as we live out the sent life. See, as a called disciple of God, I am to be with Jesus, I am to go for Jesus, and I am to live victorious through Jesus. Does that describe you? Again, I asked you the question I started in the beginning. Are you a part of the crowd? Are you a disciple? If this does not describe you, I would pray you would do whatever that would mean today. Would that mean maybe you giving yourself to following Jesus instead of just hanging out in the crowd, following Jesus, committing your life declaring your life in April 5th, we're going to have baptism. We're declaring it even in baptism. Was that what that means for you? I don't know. For some of you, it's like, hey, I've been living on my heels as a defeated person, not realizing I'm victorious. I've been caught up in an addiction. I've been caught up in a lie. I've been caught up in a brokenness and I can't break free of it. I want to close by reading one verse. Because we are to live victorious. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. There's nothing that you're experiencing today, that I'm experiencing tomorrow, that you're going to experience. There's nothing that any of us are experiencing that's new. Nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes said. There's not a new temptation out there. Oh, my parents don't get it. They didn't get it because they don't have the temptation. They had their temptations. There's nothing new out there. But here's the reality. And this is how we fight from victory. God is faithful. Can I get an amen to that too? God is faithful. See, the victory is not through me. The victory is through my relationship with God. And he will not let me. So he will not let me be tempted beyond your ability. So there's no excuse the devil made me do it. 
He will not let me be tempted beyond your ability. But with every temptation that may come your way, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is a victorious Christian life of a life of a disciple who's living with Jesus, being sent by Jesus into this world and living victorious in this world. If that is not you, I would pray during these moments together, you would give yourself over in whatever fashion that means to following Jesus like never before. Would you bow your heads with me? In a moment, as you bow your heads, in a moment, the band's going to come and they're going to lead us in a song. Prayer partners are going to be around the room. If you're a prayer partner, you get ready. These prayer partners are there for one reason, to pray with you, to pray for you. They can't pray your prayer. They can't give you the victory, but they can walk with you in prayer. And if you say, I'm ready to give my life to follow Jesus, I'm ready to find victory. I've been tied up, bound up, beaten down long enough, and I'm ready to be set free. And go to one of these and tell them. Father God, we bow before you now and we ask that in this space, in this time, in this room, that Lord, none of us, none of us will miss the power of your calling, the purpose, the meaning, the sustenance of a life and a life that's abundant, of a life, of a life that's full and free, of a life that Lord, your presence is so real that Lord, we can live victorious. And we can go into this world and show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people in such a way that they will be compelled to follow you. Lord, in this space, would you do your work? You put your own ending on that prayer. You say in your heart whatever else you need to say to God. Prayer partners, go. and Be ready. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, and for your sake, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and sing with us.